never give up. I never give up. Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another fantastic day and I was looking forward to this interview because I've got Amanda Blackwood with me. Amanda is a force of nature, is a woman who has so much been in the darkness that she had absolute, she's sick of that. And she says, well, okay, this darkness has happened, but what can we do to, to highlight the fate of so many women out there when it comes to violence, when it comes to human trafficking, when it comes to a lot of things that never should even be considered to happen in society, yet it happened to her. So what does she do? She's not the quiet victim, no. She goes out there. She has written 12 books. I mean, it's a bloody overachiever. That is what she is. This I'm I'm envious. I'm I'm jealous here as a as a as a another author. I've got uh, well, okay, I've got a lot of books, but not her quality and not her her determination. And that is I when I when I uh read her story i knew i had to i had to have this woman on my show so amanda welcome to my show thank you stefan it's very nice to be here thank you so much <laughs> oh goodness uh we both would have never chosen to be in this situation yet we both ended up uh through circumstances um that well we didn't choose and that no one ever would choose in the same mind People know my story, but they don't know your story. So where does your story start? Hidden behind a juniper bush when I was only about four. Now, this goes way back before the first time I was ever trafficked. But what a lot of people don't realize is that most victims of human trafficking have grown up and experienced abuse of different kinds when they were children. Um, my first time ever being molested that I can remember happened when I was four and it was my seven-year-old brother behind a juniper bush in Maryland and it was a very dark and scary moment for me I knew that what was happening was wrong but I knew that nobody was going to believe me or that I was going to be in trouble because anytime my brother and I ever got into trouble I was considered the ringleader mm. I had early understanding of what it meant for uh, victim blaming I got into trouble a lot. I used to climb the trees and fall out of them wearing my best Sunday dresses. I was the girl that was digging up the worms and making huge messes. This is who I was. And these messes that kept happening, most of them were my fault. But I knew early on at that four-year-old mindset that I couldn't tell people what had happened. And it went on with my life. Um, when I was 12, my brother tried again. And at the point I was big enough and old enough and I wouldn't allow him to. But then I was molested uncle. I was molested again at 15, again at 16. I was raped at 17. So I had this long history of being treated as a sex object. My father was physically abusive. My mother was a mentally and emotionally abusive. And those were the only family members that I knew. My dad was in the military, so we moved around a lot. When we're moving around, we didn't get a chance to get to know grandparents and uncles and cousins. You know, that kind of extended family didn't exist for me. This was my family network. This was all I had. And I couldn't depend on these people. I knew that early. So when I was 18 and dating a man that was then twice my age, 
when he loaned me out as a party favor to his friend for a birthday weekend, I knew that what was happening was again, yet abusive, but I didn't realize that it was actually considered human trafficking. The Department of Homeland Security defines trafficking as the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain labor or sex acts for, from a person. Basically, I was forced to go to this party. I was frauded into it by being told I was going to get an all-expenses-paid uh, vacation trip for the weekend in Las Vegas, Nevada, where I thought I was going to be riding roller coasters and was instead trapped in a hotel room. Then I was forced to perform these acts for this period of 52 hours, because if I didn't do that, I would be thrown out onto the streets without any identification as an 18-year-old. I would have been worse off than if I had just put up with what was happening to me for 52 hours and going back to where I had been. Yeah. And as horrible as this is, what a lot of people don't realize about human trafficking is that the average number of times that a person is trafficked is seven times. I was trafficked only three times. And I say only three times, like it's not that big of a deal, but every single time is of course a big deal. I ended up, this was when I was living in Arizona. It was when I was loaned out as the party favor. I ended up searching around and finding people to stay with and making friends wherever I could just so I'd have a couch to sleep on and putting myself in some really dangerous situations. I left Arizona finally and went to Arkansas. I wanted to get to know my mom's family. And that's where she had been originally from. And my grandmother was out there. I wanted to go and stay with my grandmother. And while I was there, a man met me at, a, um, I think it was an Elks Lodge. It was the only place in town where you could go to have a drink or dance. And my grandmother loved to dance. So we went out there and we were enjoying our time. And this man came up and asked my grandmother to dance. And she said, no, thank you. I, I my husband has passed. And that's the only man I was ever willing to dance with. Uh -huh. But my granddaughter here <laughs> and my grandmother introduced us. And within two days, this man had proposed marriage. I was 19 when we got married. He was and twice my age more than twice my age. I was 19. He was 38. I ended up yet again in this abusive situation. This man turned out to be an extremely abusive and controlling person. He didn't want me to wear certain things, didn't want me to go certain places. I wasn't allowed to have a car. I'd never had a driver's license at that point. He at least allowed me and helped me to get a driver's license. But I couldn't deal with him anymore. I was done. I got a job at a horse farm. I injured myself at the horse farm by accident, falling out of the hayloft. And through a worker's comp claim, they were going to send me down to Florida to have knee surgery. And I didn't tell any of this to my husband at the time. So this horse farm sent me down to Florida. I got all the way down to the Daytona Beach bus station. And I, the plan was to stay with my dad's mother there in Florida until I got the knee surgery and then get back on my feet and make my own way in life again. What happened instead was when I called them, when I got to Daytona Beach, my grandmother's husband answered, my dad's stepfather. And they said, we're not going to come and pick you up. And I'm sorry, but we don't care what happens to you. What nobody knew was that my parents had called them and said, 
she's on her way down to you. And if you take her in, we will never speak to you again. So my entire family, they figured that since I got married uh, without their permission, that I made my bed and I should lie in it, that they believed that I needed to go back to this man that had been abusing me because I was married to him. <laughs> that that eye pinch, I do that just about every time I think about this. I have a child of my own now. I could not imagine doing this to my son. I I I'm I'm just flabbergasted. I can I can understand. I can understand that the generations before us have gone through their own trauma and did I, I, I give them the grace that I think that no parent ever wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, today I'm going to fuck up my kid. Um, <laughs> I I take that for granted. They did what they did because of their often warped core beliefs of their own trauma, of their own own demons that were riding them. That That is all that I take. But why would you take active steps to make the life of your child more difficult that i cannot understand i can understand that you're too too occupied with your own trauma to be present for your child that i can understand but what you're describing to me is one step two steps further yeah it went further than that when i was a teenager too so they did everything they could to try and break my spirit when i was a kid Right. They started taking things away from me. They were grounding me. They were punishing me with uh, random menial tasks. At one point, the idea was to get me to scrub out the rolling trash bins with a toothbrush. I had nothing but a mattress on the floor of my bedroom. They took away my books, bookshelf, nightstand, my lamp. They took away everything. They took away my bedroom door all in an attempt to break my spirit, to get me to comply with being exactly the perfect child, seen and not heard. I couldn't do that. I had always been this little rebel child. I mean, this is red hair for a reason. (laughs) I was was born to be a rebel. There's nothing that's going to break this spirit in me. I was born this way. This is who I am. And this was another version of them trying to figure out a way to break the spirit and to force me to comply with what they believed I should be doing. And I just couldn't do it. So rather than being forced to turn around and go back, I sat on the curb and I cried for a while. It's like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. A young couple came and found me and they told me, You know, we just got back from New York and we have a place. We've we've got room. We'll give you a place to stay until you get on your feet, if that would help you. Well, and, you know, what else am I going to do? And it's a young couple. It's a boy and a girl. And they're my age. And they're offering me help to be able to get on my feet because these kids have seen some rough times, too. Right. What they really meant, though, was that they were going to give me a place to stay until they could find the highest bidder. Oh, for fuck's sake. They sold me to a young man who claimed his name was Esteban. I was locked up for 23 and a half hours in a small room with no food, no water, no bathroom facilities. 
And the only reason I survived was because back in the 80s, I was addicted to this TV show called MacGyver. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, excellent. Excellent. So, so I, since then, I've written to Richard Dean Anderson to tell him that what he did and in, in his portrayal of MacGyver on the show saved my life. Did He's you get never responded? Oh, okay. Okay. I don't keep writing, keep writing because that is actually such a beautiful story. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay. Oh. Keep, keep going. There's so many questions I've got, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> So I got out of there, thanks to MacGyver. I told the police who this guy was, and then I disappeared. Hmm. I had, didn't follow up. I have no idea if anybody ever figured out who this guy was and arrested him. I never did any of that. I just disappeared. I lived homeless for a little while. I floated around. I started working three full-time jobs, if you can imagine that. I was working 120 to 130 hours a week. It was insane. But I finally got myself a job working as a nanny for a little two-year-old guy as his dad was in night school. So I would spend the nights in their apartments while he was doing schoolwork. And then he would come home late at night and I would get up in the mornings and go to work at Sears. It worked out really well. We were on opposite ends of the clock. The kid was never alone. Beautiful. He decided he was going to move to Colorado. Mm. And he asked me if I wanted to go with them. And I... I can't stand in Florida anymore. I'm so sick of this place. It rains every day. It's humid. It's disgusting. This is not my part of the world. So uh -huh. I jumped at it. Yes. Yes. I want to go to Colorado. Get me the hell out of here. <laughs> we loaded up the car and we were on our way. We diverted to Ohio so he could spend some time with his uncle. And they dumped me on the side of the road. You are a shit magnet of the highest, uh, the highest category, aren't you? Kind of seems like it, doesn't it? Well, uh, may I? If, how do I say that? It takes two to tango. Where there maybe times that maybe your 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 whole rebelliousness was maybe too much for them. Was there maybe? a pattern reappearing i'm devil's advocate here i might be completely off but are there are there maybe with hindsight actions or attitudes or other things that maybe where you can where you contributed to the problem it, it, that would be a really good question if it had been maybe a longer period of time right i'd only been working for the guy for a month and a half or so I see. Now, at that point, I was still doing anything and everything to try and please everybody around me. Uh, One of the major trauma reactions that I still go through is the people pleasing. Of course. Yeah. I would do anything to mm. make the people around me happy because I don't want to have this happen to me again. Sure. Yeah. So I'd bend over backwards. I think one of the reasons that things like this kept happening to me was because of my familiarity with abusive situations and abusive people. I was drawn to those people specifically uh, because it was what I was familiar with. Of course, that is the repeating theme uh, in yeah. so many stories. You're quite right. You're quite right. Yeah. Wow. So again, sitting on the curbside. Um, right. <laughs> My goodness, um, that was, oh, my goodness, that was when, when are we talking about now? How old that were you? That was, um, 
summer of 1999. Mm. Bloody hell. Okay. Then what? I hitchhiked into the city, called my uh, now ex-husband, and asked him to bring me back to Arkansas. My parents finally got there. Shit. Shit. So from, from the frying pan into the fire again. Right. Right. It got ugly from there. I mean, it was pretty quickly after that, I ended up pregnant with my son. Hmm. Uh, one of the things that I, I try to shield him from is I, I don't tell him that this wasn't by choice. His dad was a, a horribly abusive, brutal person. And a lot of people want to try to claim that um, marital rape doesn't exist because as if you're married, this is your marital duty. And I've had this said to me over and over and over and over again, but that's not the case. You still have the right to say no. Of course you do. If this isn't something that you're wanting, if this isn't something that you desire, you have the right to say, no, it doesn't matter if you're married to this person or not. And the fact that they get drunk and do violent things has nothing to do with who you are, has everything to do with who they are. Mm. And I try not to ever allow my son to um, see my interviews and stuff because I do talk about this, you know, and I've written about it in my book. It's a dark world where he came from, but he is the light of my life. How old is your son now? He must be about in teens, early teens. 23. That's what I'm saying. So how can you prevent him seeing the show? <laughs> he doesn't really watch a lot of interviews and stuff. Um, he's not really big on reading too much. He's he kind of sticks to himself. He and his wife had their first baby. So I'm now a grandmother. <laughs> She's okay. five days old and adorable. Oh, congratulations. Oh, beautiful. Oh, bloody hell. Okay. Uh with that you prove the past does not equal the future. Right. But but we are still when he is a little little munchkin um, and you're trying to shield him, you're still in this abusive marriage. Uh, how the hell did you get that out? That marriage didn't last very long after that. I I went through some severe postpartum depression. Oh. My son, as much as I loved him, there were certain times where I physically just couldn't be around him because mm. I was I was distraught. For one thing, immediately after he was born, I was rushed into an emergency surgery and I died three times in a hysterectomy at 20. Mm. It was, I tell people all the time that my son was born on August 31st and I was reborn on September 1st because that's when I died and re was returned. Things actually got worse. So I divorced his dad. We had <laughs> we had what you would call uh, any reasonable visitation for me. And that was because at the time I was still floating around and could not figure out how to support myself and to have mm. just one job and live alone and have space to be able to have a kid. Now, I, I saw my son as often as I possibly could. But I also knew that living in this small town of 163 people in a place called Rosebud, Arkansas, was not going to afford me the opportunities at any point to be mm. able to support myself. I needed to get out of town. So as was my typical method at that point, I met people. And those people invited me to move to California. So I jumped at the opportunity. It was great. 
I did wonderful things in California. I lived in LA for 14 years. My ambition going there as odd as it sounds was to be a really good secretary to somebody who was important or famous. Mm. I didn't want to be an actress or a model or anything like that. I ended up falling into those things. I was on Alias and Will and Grace, and I modeled for Harley Davidson and a couple of cosmetics ads. I did a lot of really cool, really interesting stuff. I was building Mm. this great portfolio. I was having a blast. But while I was living there, I started feeling kind of lonely. I started the online dating world for the first time, and I found this guy Well, I found two different men at the same time, same day. One of them lived all the way out in Scotland. (laughs) One of them, (laughs) one of them only lived a few hours away. So, you know, the one in Scotland, I built a friendship with, and we stayed in contact for, you know, a long, long time. And the other one was a stuntman in Hollywood. I married him. But we weren't married for more than a year and a half before his abusive side came out. And the day he threw a massive Millennium Falcon Lego build machine at me and it smashed on the closet wall behind me was the day I said, no more. I'm done. I'm not putting up with this. I don't know why this keeps happening to me. And that was my my mantra at the time. But I'm going to break this. I'm going to break this cycle, figure it out and move on with my life. And you are not going to be a part of it anymore. And when I left him, I reconnected with the man in Scotland and we continued our friendship for a number of years and seven years went by. He came to visit me. I went to go and visit him. And at the end of the seven years, he asked me to get a fiance visa and move to Scotland and marry him. (laughs) He's a police officer. He's smart. He's ambitious. He's funny. He's handsome. Now he's got at that point, a 12 year old little girl who looks remarkably similar to me with same hair, same facial shape, same eyes. This, this looks like this is, this is it. This is my happily ever after, right? Seven years it took him to get me there. And in seven days he was trafficking me. You're kidding. This, this was the part that was the hardest to deal with. This was the hardest part of my life. He had taken my driver's license and my passport and all that stuff from me almost as soon as I landed. And it wasn't by force. He wasn't stealing it from me. He said, I've got a lockbox box at the house. If you hand me those documents, I'll make sure they go into this fireproof lockbox. So if anything ever happens, you know, we have access to them. And I trusted him. After this many times of being in these horrible situations, you would think I would know better. But this is where the I should, I should, I should comes from. And we should, we, we need to avoid shooting all over ourselves because that's not healthy. Now, I can easily think about all the things that I would have changed in my past. But the fact that it's already happened means that I can't. These things exist. So my next step was to figure out how am I going to get out of this? One night while he'd been drinking a little bit too heavily, um, he was a heavy, heavy alcoholic, very abusive and got worse every time he had another drink. And it was at the end of the evening when his quote unquote guests were leaving that I told him, you know, I was thinking that maybe tomorrow, maybe I could go down to the bank and take out the money that I have in the bank 
and bring it back so you can put it in your bank account because it's just going to sit there forever right now and we'll never be able to use it. So I don't have that much, but I've got some. And he gave me my documents. And the next morning, the first thing I did was jump on the computer and purchase the first flight out that I could afford. And that was five days away. I could last five days. It was only five days. I've been through worse. I can do this. Yes, but yes, but he would automatically take your take your documents back. A man who is that controlling, who a man who has groomed you for seven years. Um, you would think you would think, but he'd had so much alcohol that night he didn't remember getting them out and giving them. To oh, beautiful, <laughs> beautiful. Okay. So he had a couple more guests come over every single night for you know leading up to that, and one of them. Uh, made me very sick. I ended up with a severe kidney infection. And when that happened, I kind of, I I ended up for one in the hospital and I don't remember it, but I was in the hospital or recovering at home and completely unconscious during the point in time when my flight took off. Scheiße. Ah. Yeah. So I was frustrated all over again. I'm feeling better. I'm on antibiotics. I'm getting my strength back, but the abuse is continuing. I need to find a way out. So every now and then I'd be able to get out of the house. I'd be given pocket change to go and purchase cigarettes because we were both smokers at the time. Or we would, I would walk down the grocery store and go pick up a couple of things to be able to cook something at the house. And his family wanted cornbread. They had seen the movie, The Green Mile, and they had never tasted cornbread and they wanted to know what that was like. So I told them, I said, I need a little extra change and go go down and buy some cornbread. Well, really what I was trying to do was build some kind of a relationship with somebody outside of the house so I could ask somebody for help. But not asking people for help is another trauma reaction. And I didn't realize that at the time. I was going through all of this stuff and I was terrified to ask for help because I didn't know who to trust. He's a police officer Mm. in this small town in Scotland. If I ask the wrong person for help, Mm. the first thing that's going to happen is I'm going to end up way worse off Mm. and they'll never find the body. Mm. So this, this whole plan to try to build this relationship with anybody I could find failed. Mm. I ended up buying the cornmeal, going back to the house, and making a big batch of cornbread. And his entire family came over that that evening and they ate the entire pan of cornbread in probably about 10 minutes and they loved it. And that was probably the highlight of my stay in Scotland was how much they enjoyed the cornbread. I tried trying to come up with other ways of getting out of there. And finally, one day I was just done. Yeah, I can't figure out my way out of this one. I, I don't have any resources left. So I went down to an old church that had been built in the 1700s. And my plan was that I was going to sit on the steps or try to go inside and see if I could find somebody. And when the door was locked, I ended up sitting on the steps and waiting for a long time and thinking maybe somebody will come. You know, maybe somebody is going to walk by and see me and ask me what's wrong. And nobody showed up. Nobody came. So I got up and I wandered around the churchyard a little bit and I found a headstone that was Uh, put there in 1776 it was the only part of the stone that you could still read and that is the american independence day Mm -hmm. year so i I took that as kind of a sign of sorts and i sat there next to that headstone and again i waited for somebody to show up 
and nobody showed up. And my only friend that day was that that person that was six feet under that headstone. And I talked to them and I told them everything. And the more I talked about it, the worse I felt. I was digging this deep hole as though I was putting myself in the box with that person. Like my life was already over. This is all my life had ever been. I'm in this dark place. I don't want to go on. So I had the idea to go out by train. And finally, I got up from the, the graveyard and I walked to the train station. As I was waiting for the train to show up, I took out what was the only cigarette that I had left. And I'm thinking, this is going to be my last cigarette. And I lit my cigarette and a man walked out onto the platform and he asked me for a light and I handed him the matches. And I wanted to tell him, you can go ahead and keep those. I won't be needing again. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to tell him this because I wanted him to ask why I wouldn't be needing them again. Because unless he asked me, I saw no reason to tell him. I, I wanted to tell him this was going to be my last day on earth and that I was ending it all so that maybe he might be able to do something to help. But who was I to burden this man with my story? He wasn't going to care. He didn't know me. I couldn't make him care. In reality, he probably would have cared. And he probably would have done something to try to get me out of there. But again, that fear crept in that if he called the local authorities, mm. the man that was abusing me was the local authorities. Mm. Mm. I didn't have anybody I could turn to. Mm. So instead, I sat back down at the train. And I watched as a little boy came running out onto the platform and he grabbed that man's hand. And this little guy was probably about four years old. And he just, he looked at me. And when he looked at me, I could tell that little boy saw what nobody else on the planet could see right then. He saw that I was hurting. He saw I was injured some way and I needed help. And he saw the sadness in my eyes and it wasn't like he was looking at me. He was looking through me. Mm. He looked at me with wisdom and age far beyond his years. And it was probably a good 20 seconds before I realized that I was running. And instead of running at the train, I was running back toward my prison. It, it, I was excited not to get abused again or to continue going through what I was going through. But I was excited because I knew that if I was being kept alive right then, there had to be a reason. There had to be more to my life. This wasn't the end of my story. It couldn't be. I was still only 31 years old. I was still young and eager to live my life. And I'd never had that opportunity. I needed to live. I got back. And I did some research on into uh, Stockholm syndrome that's now been rebranded and renamed as trauma bonding. And I started trying to figure out more what I could do to try to manipulate the system and to manipulate his mind. I made him believe that I was so in love with him that I would do anything for him. And I reminded him that the date on the marriage visa, the, the fiance visa, had already come and gone. And since we weren't married, my visa was about to expire. Mm -hmm. 
And if anybody found out that it expired, I'd be kicked out of the UK and I would never be allowed to come back because of UK laws. And if anybody found out that he'd kept him there beyond my visa, he could lose his job as a police officer. We wouldn't want that. Oh. I made Ooh. him believe it. Very nice. And the whole Very time nice. was pouring him more glasses of whiskey. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> by the end of the evening he had bought a round trip flight for me to go from scotland back to california for six months and return in time for my birthday uh... and of course i didn't ever go back i still have the ticket i have that ticket i have my tickets from staying on board the queen mary out in los angeles and going to see a star trek exhibit and being on the news and traveling to London and Paris and all these things that I never thought that I would have a chance or an opportunity to do because my life didn't allow for these extravagances. But I didn't do these things because I'd always wanted to do them. I did them because that first year away from there, I felt so broken that I needed distractions and I was willing to do anything to have healthy, tangible distractions of things that I can say, look at this, I did this. I was marking off my bucket list. I wasn't planning on living that first full year. I was still so broken and so hurting. I didn't want to live past that first year. But in that year, in all of those things that I was doing, I started to find and to pick up little pieces of me that I had lost along the way. And I started putting together this human being that I had never known. And it was this beautiful thing. He attacked me. He had taken photos and videos of me when I was being uh, raped and molested. Um, he sent those to my boss. I lost my job. He sent those to a friend of mine I'd known for 14 years. I lost my friend. When I tried to tell my best friend at the time about what had happened and what I'd lived through, she couldn't wrap her brain around how something like this could happen to somebody of my age without it being of consent. Oh, so come she on. Made sense of it. Right. <laughs> so she oh. made sense of it in whatever way she could. And she told people I had been a high-priced call girl. I lost that friendship too. No, that wasn't a friendship. You, you, you describe relationships in, in nice terms, but these are not... These are not friends. And I had been under the impression that she was. She was the person that gave me a place to stay when I got back from Scotland. You know, she she did what she could to uh, help me. She let me borrow her card to go and look for work. She gave me a safe mm. place to stay. Mm. She had really shown me friendship. But okay. that when that happened, I I lost that. And then there's, of course, then a question there. Is there a trauma underlying her story? Is there trauma going back to her where yes. your story became just far too close for comfort so that she built up a wall there? Um, I believe it, so. She was adopted at birth. I think there are, yeah. Far out. Oh, my, oh, my. So, but my story still doesn't end. You know, in 2016, I finally moved out to Colorado. I was looking for new horizons. I needed a place to start over. In 2019, 
I found out that he had put all the photos and videos that were taken of me during those rapes and molestations. He put them up on a pornography website and made me famous. Overnight, I was famous. I had so many people following my social media pages and I had no idea why. He had included my social media handles and my former address and my social security number and every other piece of detailed information he could get on me with these videos. And that's when I broke. And I don't mean broke in a bad way. That's when I broke through the darkness and said, if they're going to find me anyway, they might as well know why. And I became a public speaker. I wrote my book and I started telling the truth about this guy. And while he still has his job as a police officer in Scotland, because you can't prosecute across international borders, I guarantee there's a lot of eyebrows that raise that this guy and he walks through town. Oh, beautiful. Could you get the pictures to be taken down? Is there, are there ways to, to actually address that? I was really curious about that too. I got involved with an anti-trafficking organization out here. They put me in touch with a group called Alight, and they pair survivors of human trafficking with legal services. And uh-huh. legal services of basically any kind. I was paired up with a uh, nice law firm in New York City, and this is what they focus on for me. Every single time something pops up, all I have to do is send them the direct link to it, right. and they will immediately contact the pornography websites and have the stuff pulled down. Nice. So that actually works. Because, I mean, that is the fate of so many young women nowadays who are stupid enough, and, and I and have to say that, um, to expose themselves. I mean, eight out of 10 of my children's mates have sent sex pics voluntarily to their mates boob pics more everything and it just blows my mind how much these young people are exposing themselves to uh, to i don't know be part of something um but these pictures are out there these pictures can be abused and used against them um so therefore, this is a, a this is an a, an under a undercurrent that is a, a a problem that is hitting so many people out there, and maybe it's not maybe that is actually one of the reasons that that one in five young women uh, teens are diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. Um, there are many actions that unfortunately our youth nowadays takes that sets them up to actually be in a really nasty nasty. Uh, rebound or not rebound is the wrong word that they end up in a nasty situation that they can't control any longer right bloody hell one of the other things that i learned through all of this is that more than 80 percent of all pornography anywhere is created using victims of human trafficking and what you're talking about is a form of human trafficking they are forced into taking those videos or photos or they are frauded into it oh nobody will ever see these these are just for me or they're coerced into it you'll do this for me if you love me and then they're thrown up on these pornography websites for mass consumption where does this where does this figure come from because 80 percent is is a huge number if you think about how much pornography is out there right Right. And those weren't the numbers for a long, long time. But now with the age of the Internet and people being able to upload their own videos and stuff, it's definitely changed and skewed this in a big way. But these are directly from uh, the Federal Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. Wow. Okay. Wow. 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 
And of course, there is MySpace and there are other uh, things. There are basically, over the last three years, uh, life has become more challenging for people. And I certainly know personally uh, women who have found themselves pressured due to financial circumstances to go out there and actually uh, use pictures, use uh, films, etc., to actually make money. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I would not say that this is human trafficking. This is this is hard times, and for these women, they don't saw so they they didn't see another another way to make as much money as they did to actually support their families. So, therefore, again, these things might have been skewed a bit. But I mean, for crying out loud, there is so much pornography out there. And if you then say, "Wow, eighty percent," or even if you say, "Come on, eighty percent is rubbish," let's make it fifty percent. Okay, let's let's cut back. That's, that's still, good. I know that's exactly my point. That's exactly my point. My goodness. Um, if these figures are out there, and if these figures are true, and let, and I'm just devil's advocate here, I believe that they are true. Um, if they are true, then there are a lot of victims out there. Um, yes, victims by definition often stay quiet, yet why is there not such a, a much larger outcry? Why do you not have a whole tribe of sisters who are basically going around and are changing the world? One of the reasons is that only 2% of all victims of human trafficking actually survive. I, that is a startling number. Of the 2% that actually get out with their lives and manage to survive, there's so few of us willing to speak because of the victim blaming, because of our own sense of guilt, and because what we've been through is not how the media portrays human trafficking. It wasn't until I was sitting in a conference at an anti-trafficking conference in 2018 that I discovered that what I went through even had a name, much less that I had been through it three times. I thought what I had been through was abusive situations in a kidnapping scenario. What it really was, was human trafficking. And when they defined that for me and broke that down, I understood a lot more about it. As part of the reason that I do what I do now is because I know there are so many people out there who have been victims of human trafficking and don't realize it. They think that this is just something that their boyfriend has done to them or something that their parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles have done to them. More than 85%, I think it's like 86, 87% of all victims of human trafficking are trafficked by people they know and trust and love, people with mm. a sense of authority in their lives, like, like those immediate family members, like those extended family members, like their love interests, boyfriends and girlfriends. Now, these numbers are ridiculous. And how they're portrayed in the media is that it's always a kidnapping scenario. I see posts on social media constantly of women saying, I was followed through a grocery store by some man who was creeping on me. And I think he's trying to human traffic me. That's not what trafficking looks like. This man that's following you through a grocery store may very well be very dangerous. He may be a serial, serial stalker. He might be a rapist. He might be a kidnapper. He might be a serial murderer. He might be a trafficker, but the chances of him being a serial rapist are higher. When people start telling these stories from these perspectives of 
this total stranger was following me. And I think this is human trafficking and people are buying into this and saying, Oh yeah, definitely. That's, that's gotta be human trafficking. They're doing damage to the cause. They are silencing the real victims of human trafficking. They're silencing the real survivors of trafficking because now we're afraid to speak up because it doesn't look like how they're saying it's supposed to look like. When I wrote my autobiography, I had somebody leave a very nasty review on my book saying, I see no evidence of of human trafficking. I only see one person made a whole lot of really bad decisions. And while I made some very bad decisions in my life, the abuse was not my fault. What happened to me is defined as human trafficking, and it does exist in my world. The fact that people are still going to come out and try to blame the victims is so damaging. Yeah. And the average lifespan of a victim in human trafficking is only seven years. During that seven years, they either die of a drug overdose, they commit suicide, or they're beaten to death. Those are the three highest death rates of people in trafficking. It's awful, awful. So these people, when they get out of trafficking, they're just happy and lucky to be alive. They want to try to focus on their own healing. They want to focus on having some sense of a normal life. They don't want to focus on talking about this stuff every day. I'm blessed to be able to because of, I mentioned before we started recording, my mother put me on drugs illegally when I was four years old. The drug that she put me on was called Ritalin. It was all the rage in the 80s. My brother was diagnosed as ADHD and I was not. The doctors told her I was fine. So she started breaking my brother's pills in half and giving them to me every day also. After about a year, she took me off for a couple of days before taking me back into the doctor. And of course, going through a drug withdrawal as a five-year-old, I was pinging off the walls and they diagnosed me as ADD and gave me my own prescription. I took myself off at 15 and went through major drug withdrawals. But one of the long-term side effects of having been on Ritalin for as long as I was is the lack of an inhibitor. I don't have a verbal filter when it comes to talking about this stuff. So in a sense, my earliest abuses are why I can talk about all of my abuses now. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. What changed? What changed four years ago? You were... It was, uh, I, I think, the, the straw that broke the camel's back in a good sense that you that you were no longer willing to shut up, that you actually wanted to make sense out of your trauma. But it was then that you started talking. It was then that you started going out there. But who helped you to heal? Who helped you? You can't do that alone. You can't do everything yourself, however much survivor you are, however much MacGyver you are, okay? So, no. Who was the tribe that came into your life to help you mend, to help you heal? At the time, I was pretty solitary. Um, I had done a lot of work on my own. I'd done a lot of research into psychology and to understand trauma reactions and stuff. But when I found out that all this stuff had been put up on a pornography website, I was 
beside myself. Huh. I was completely distraught. I had no idea what to do. Yeah. I was threatening to cut all my hair off and dye it dark brown or bleach it blonde, yeah. um, change my entire look, wear dark brown contacts for the rest of my life. I was going into hiding. And I stopped myself and said, no, I only just recently in the last five years discovered who I am. Why would I hide that now? I can't do that. I can't do that to myself. I can't just give up. I have fought so hard for so long just to stay alive. Hmm. I can't just roll over and take it. So sure. I reached out to the anti-trafficking organization out here. Um, and they were the ones that put me in touch with a light. But they also put me in touch with a therapist. Hmm. And my first therapist, this poor woman was new to the industry. She had no idea what she was getting herself into. And I traumatized her to the point. I think she left the industry completely. I think she quit her job. I cannot tell you how many times I would tell her about something that had happened in my life, something that to me seemed innocuous. And she'd have saucer eyes and a gaping mouth. And all she could do was go, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. So after several months of seeing this woman, she decided she could no longer continue to help me. God. And I was on my own for a little bit. And the anti-trafficking organization put me in touch with another therapist. This other therapist had experience of working with other survivors of human trafficking, which was really important to me. Mm -hmm. Because I had already done so much research and so much work trying to get through this on my own, I was ready for somebody who pulled no punches, would tell me like it was, wouldn't walk around on eggshells around me. I didn't need that. I needed somebody to really push me to get over these speed bumps. And that was exactly what she did. She told me, I'm not going to pull any punches. I'm going to tell you like it is. And I told her, thank you. This is exactly what I need. She said, are you sure? Because a lot of people, they don't like this. They think this is what they need and they don't like it. No, Amy, push me. Mm. <laughs> At the Beautiful. end of one year, she it was November of 2020. She told me, I don't know that there's much else that I can do to help you. We've worked through so much and you've made so much progress. You know, I'm really proud of you. But, you know, I, we're going to keep meeting once a month. But what's next for you? Beautiful. And I said, you know, I think I'm going to write my book. And she said, well, you've already written several books, right? And yeah. She said, well, what's this one going to be? I said, my life, who I am, where I came from, the whole thing. And like you said, pull no punches. Mm -hmm. So I started working on the book and she said, well, I'll check in with you in, in early January after the Christmas season and everything. And we'll see how everything's going. Right. So I started my book. And January rolled around and she asked me, so how's the book coming? It's done. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because once, you, once, we, once we start writing, you can't stop, isn't it? Once right, you start right. talking about it, it just flows. If it's destined to come out, it will come out. And it doesn't take, it doesn't, no holds barred, no prisoners taken. It just comes out. What's your first draft? Was it the same draft as it is now has gone out or? There's a couple of editing uh, things that have happened between now and then. One of those things was that I was baptized the following April. 
and uh-huh. the very last page for a long time that existed was my baptism. And I had uh-huh. a little little uh, note in there about having found God through all of this journey and through all of this darkness. Mm. Just recently, I put out one more version. And this one ended with my wedding photo. Ah. About one month after my book was released, I met the man that is now my husband. Excellent. Excellent. Now, the reason I'm asking is when you start writing things down, that's such a therapeutic process. It's also a new trauma that that occurs um, because you're reliving much of the stuff. So when I wrote my first version of, now here, <laughs> Steps of Sobriety, that was a very dark book. It was, uh, oh yeah, very dark. Um, so I gave it to a, a mentor and he sort of read it and said, you know, people know the darkness. Um, they want to know how you got into the light. They want to know how to get out of their own darkness, not revel in the mud um, kind of thing. So therefore, I'm saying so from the very first draft that I've written, like you in December, I pretty much nailed it within what four, six weeks. Whoom, it came down. But it then changed, it morphed, it it became something new. So, uh, but with you, it seemingly came out and there it was. And nice, 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 nice. And there were so many times in it too, where I was focusing on these really dark moments, but then it's like, you know what, this is too dark. I am, I have to pull this back a little bit. Mm. And for myself, I need to write something that's going to be a little bit more light. And I did go through some of my fond childhood memories of some of my family members and stuff that would come to visit. It's like the time that my uncle tried to teach us how to make spaghetti and ended up taking the noodles and throwing it against the wall. And if it stuck, that meant the, po- meant the pasta was done. The incident where that occurred was so funny that I had to include that in this book. <laughs> but this is sandwiched in between like horror stories in my life. So it was really important to me to have people understand that my, while I did live this very dark life and I have grown from the darkness, not every moment of my life was this horrible dark place. Mm-hmm. You know, there were these moments of light and of love and of acceptance where they gave me hope. You know, and those little tiny glimmers, it was like like a, a speck of of um glitter sitting on a black blanket. (laughs) There was that moment. And that moment is there and it's almost tangible and you can reach out and touch it and feel it. Mm. But you can still see it in your mind and you know it's there. And one of these days, you're going to find that glitter again. (laughs) I described it in my own life at one stage as driving through a complete a blackout street um, where there is no light, but you know there are houses, no light whatsoever. And then suddenly you see a door just a little bit ajar and you see that little bit glimmer of light coming out, but then you have driven past it. But you knew there's something there, but you just can't see it. That's how I described it to someone when I was in in my own darkness. So yes, there is these 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 specks are there. The question is, these are these are little seeds of hope. And nowadays we tend to those seeds. 
and we make them grow into something beautiful. We'll actually uh, we actually start seeding more sparkles in our life and then actually turn it around. And that's so and beautiful. That blanket is covered. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And since you're talking, I mean, I, I need to say, because we see in the preamble of before we started actually recording, um, I was commenting on the things behind you because there is, there are, there is another side because we, we, we are not just, um, how shall I say that when we are not just survivors, we become thrivers, we become, we become creatives, we become people who go out there and think, how can we start joy? Tell us a little bit about those beautiful things that are actually hidden behind you. <laughs> I love all of this stuff. So I'm a huge history buff, specifically of the American era between 1930 and 1950. Huge fan of the 1940s and uh, everything that encompassed. So I've got things in here that I use regularly, handbags, hats, gloves, jewelry, makeup, all kinds of stuff. I have pieces in here that have stories of their own. My absolute favorite is this one because it has this fascinating story. You see all these little rhinestones here? Yeah. I had to put those back in myself because this bag was used in the early 1950s to smuggle diamonds into the country. They popped out all those rhinestones and replaced them with diamonds. When they got them into the country, they popped the diamonds back out, tossed the bag in the attic and never looked at it again. Excellent. <laughs> but oh, when I wear this stuff, I, yeah. um, I do it regularly. So whenever I'm speaking on stages, if I have yeah. the opportunity yeah. to dress in my 1940s yeah. attire, that was born, I did not mention this before the show, that was born from being a Holocaust specialist at the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles, California for a time. I was a part of the exhibit. I showed up in my dresses and my ladies' suits from the era with my hair done perfectly and the jewelry, and I would stand in the dark corner and I would wait for the tour group to gather. And when they would gather, I would step out of the shadows and become a part of the living exhibit and guide them through what that meant to be there. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Wow. And... It is beautiful because here you have found your creative fashion. And for those of you who actually, guys, if you're uh, having a look under Amanda Blackwood and see the, the beautiful books that are out there that she did, and one of them, she has got the most beautiful makeup there um, that is uh that is, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's getting ready. She's getting ready. Show it. Show it. There you go. <laughs> that's perfect. And that's beautiful. Custom justice. So if you just look at that, what a stunning picture it is. You're a stunning woman, but to transfer you back into, into that style of the 1940s, 50s, it just makes that book cover. Wow. Um, and you had mentioned one of my books earlier called The Road We Left Behind about yeah. my grandmother's life as a wing worker in the 30s and 40s. What I also didn't mention about that, that earlier was that immediately after I finished writing my book, my therapist asked me, so what's next? She told me to start painting and I'd never painted before in my life. Within three months, I'd sold my first painting and now I've sold my art all over the world. <laughs> the cover for The Road You Left Behind, there's two different covers. Yeah. I painted both of them. <laughs> and that's the beautiful, the beautiful thing. We are 
we become such creatives because we are realizing, okay, the world is sometimes not so nice. So how can we make it nicer? How can we make it better? By writing a book, by painting, by putting a smile on someone's random face with an act of kindness. There are so many things that we survivors do that changes us into thrivers this post-traumatic growth this 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 period of you just taking off this is this is waiting for you guys out there this is if you're still in the victim role um that's okay there's nothing wrong with that to have a pity party uh and maybe your pity party has lasted 15 years it doesn't matter but the question is you know you had enough of that because otherwise you wouldn't be here. Otherwise you wouldn't have listened to the two of us rambling on about, about things. And, and, you know, you're, you, you are ready. You've taken action already. So you're no longer in a pity party. You have actually taken action to listen to us this long. So now the question is where to from here? Maybe very simple. Um, you could say, take further action, for example, like, and subscribe to my channel so that's easy or if actually today's topic and amanda's work has been uh illuminating and 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 raising issues for you that you want to explore more well why not get in touch with amanda so amanda where can they find you my two websites, one of them is called growthfromdarkness.com. The other one is detailedpieces.com. I'm reachable at both of those. They can always send me an email, authoramandablackwood at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. Reach out to me on Facebook. I'm very active there, facebook.com slash survivor. I also Beautiful. have two podcasts they can listen into. Uh, one of them explores trauma reactions and what the long-term consequences are of not dealing with them and how to fight back. And the other one, I interview other authors who have survived traumas and I want you on my show. <laughs> okay. I'm in. <laughs> Let's have fun. <laughs> oh, is you're gorgeous. See, this moment is unstoppable. So, and if you look at, at the two of us, we are, yes, we have gone through our trauma. Yes. We are living right now alive. That is, there's, ah, yes. You, you want to take the bull by its horns. Um, so what stops you? What stops you? That is the question. You have, you are ready. You don't know it yet. And maybe you're a bit scared of taking the next steps, whatever they may be, but you're ready. So guys, who do you want to be when you grow up? And it doesn't matter if you're 17 or 70, you've got the power to change. You've got the power to, to steer your boat in a different direction. The wind is still howling. There's still a storm going on, but you are at a rudder. You can change directions. You don't have to be a cork just bopping along on in the storm, but you can actually, by, by stopping for a moment, thinking, pause, hold, and then think, okay, what do I, what, what are the things I really can't do anything about? And then maybe just jettison those thoughts a bit or put them to the side, but think, what can you actually do? And there is actually always something you can do. If you feel that you are right now in a situation, though, where your life is at risk, or where you are right now 
feel, oh my God, I need to get out. Um, Amanda, is there a trick or a technique that you would uh, would recommend, maybe a way out to um, to get out of a situation? Every case is always going to be different. Mm. I do pride myself on being an exit strategist, and there are exit <laughs> strategists that work with just about every anti-trafficking or domestic violence organization out there. Mm. If you're like me and you feel like you can't reach out to the police because some of the abuse is coming from the police, there are other alternatives to that also. Mm. Here in the U.S., we've just recently implemented something called the 988 campaign. Instead of dialing 911, you can call 988 and they will find a psychologist and somebody with lived experience to come and speak to you. If you're in danger, they can also help you to get out of that danger and find a safe place to go. Be aware of that number, program it in your phones, keep it handy, 988. How cool is that? Um, the other way of going about is that you, um, over a period of a few hours, start feeling sick, that there is pain that is initially in your tummy and it's all over the show, but then it's going more into the right lower quadrant of your tummy and becomes quite severe and, and bends you over in pain and you really need to see an emergency department. And um, it's an appendicitis. It's a very common thing that happens to people. Uh, and it's a it's a true emergency. So therefore, that might uh, give you a way to come to a hospital. And in uh, many hospitals, uh, there are very specific pathways to help women and men or non non-binary people um, to actually get help. Uh, in I've seen in hospitals, um, you know, you often get asked for a urine sample and um, they are uh, the, the pots there and two pens um, and a little sign saying, uh, if you need help, use the red pen to write your name and uh, details on it um, to to leave a, uh, a help a uh, 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 cry for help um, to the nurses who will automatically jump into action then. So these are ways where you can get actually out of a prison of sorts um, and seek help. Um, but you're quite right. You can't do it all alone. It is, but I think that the key thing, the key message that I want to say is that there is hope and that there's help out there. You just can't see it. And trust us as, as in this case, Amanda, who has been there, done it. In my case, as a doctor who is working within systems um, where we are looking out for people who are in distress and who are in trouble. And there are ways out. Um, in New Zealand, we've got a women's refuge, um, which is an excellent organization that, that helps you there and then and might just, you know, get you right now out, put you in a safe house, and um, you will never be found again by your, by the perpetrator. Um, so there are, there are many ways out. So guys, don't give up. There is hope. And I think that's the key message that I want to send out to you, okay? Wow. Wow. <laughs> Amanda, what, what an interview. Um, e wow. You blew me away and you raised so many beautiful, beautiful points, though. 
um, that out of the darkness comes the light and and us being addicted to make this world a better place. And I think this is a, an addiction that I subscribe to and that I'm proud to have. Um, and who knows what will happen with you. Um, so guys, watch out when I come onto Amanda's podcast uh, and we see what uh, what what gems we can bring out out of the two of us there. Um, but as with everything, um, we both are growing. We both are on a path. And as it so happens, we're just a little bit further down the, the line, probably compared with you guys. So come onto the path, join us, make this world a better place. Uh, because when we all work together, hell, I'm, I'm convinced we can make this world a better place. Amanda, thank you so much for your time. It was an honor to interview you. It was a real pleasure. I had a ball. Thank you so much. And thank you, Stefan. This was amazing. <laughs> and you guys out there, look after yourself and live with passion. Okay. Bye. I never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Turn around.